This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm David Lipson. Coming up, the federal government announces a royal commission into the botched robo-debt program. It's the latest in a spate of public inquiries, so how many is too many? But first... The challenges facing Australia's workforce run long and deep. We used to be open seven days and seven nights, but now we're only open two nights a week. Never have we seen job advertisements this high for this long. Every trade impacted, every region, every city. We are facing uh, you know, a, a labour market, the likes of which we really haven't seen for five decades. From engineers to nurses and early childhood educators, the worker shortage is at the heart of the problem. And traditionally, we've been able to rely on migration to fill some of these crucial roles, but thanks to the pandemic, that workforce has dwindled. Migration's also sure to be a top talking point at the federal government's skills summit next week. In Australia, but also around the world, what we essentially went from was peak mobility, with people travelling around the world and migrating around the world at incredible levels in 2019 to almost nothing in Australia. Melinda Salento is an economist and CEO of CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. You know, we normally have a really significant number of people coming in as skilled migrants, but also, of course, other workers, if you like, coming in as international students who work uh, and backpackers who work. And that evaporated in a really short period of time. So it was an incredible dislocation or disruption, if you like, and we're still readjusting to that uh, and it's taking a little bit of time. The whole world kind of shut down to varying degrees, but Australia really shut the doors harder and and longer than, than many places. Do you think that's affected our reputation uh, in, in the longer term as, as a nation where people do want to come and can readily come to work? I think there's no doubt that um, it influenced the way people were thinking about Australia um, throughout um, the pandemic and, and is still probably lingering in people's minds, if you like. And really the concern was if we get to Australia, um, can we leave again? And, and how do we think about that? And, and you know, what are, what's the support that we might have while we're there if you know, really drastic circumstances emerge? The thing that I would say, though, David, is if, if, if you look at some indicators, and I'll, I'll tell you one of them that we've looked at, if you look at Google searches of migrating to Australia, hmm. um, that's right back up to uh, close to where it was pre-pandemic. Interesting, so, interesting. So I think as we start to get back to something like business as usual, that that enthusiasm to come to Australia is returning. And and look, there's lots of reasons why people should be interested. The one thing I would say that is front and centre in our mind uh, for the Skills Summit next week is that if you look at the incoming government brief, there is a backlog of one million applicants who are looking to get their visas processed. Mm. So we've got to deal with that. It's just so crucial, isn't it? Because we heard examples this week of engineers waiting three years to get here and they're still waiting. Uh, What is the reason for that backlog? Why are they not able to get in right away? So there's a couple of things. I mean, obviously, um, we're we're playing catch up and we need more resources um, going into the department to process those applications. Uh, That is happening, but it is going to take some time. Um, And I think the other more fundamental thing is that we just have to look at how we actually process, how we're making decisions about who's coming in. There's a whole much larger issue there around the way we think about occupations and skills, Mm. 
which is which is a bigger conversation. But you know, first and foremost, we need more processes. The other thing that we've highlighted is that there are some people who you just actually need to make it easier for. And the groups that we've talked about are workers who work for multinational corporations. Those organisations manage their workforces globally. We actually just need to make that a lot easier than we do. What about the number of migrants and, and skilled workers coming to Australia? We've seen business groups and unions have have some similar thoughts on, on, on increasing the intake, perhaps by around 40,000 places a year. How far would that go in plugging the skills gap now? So let me just start with one one comment to Dave, just to give context about why this is so important. Uh, what we're hearing from so many businesses at the moment is actually the inability to find skilled workers is impacting their investment decisions. So their business growth and investment opportunities are actually being slowed down because they can't get the people that they need. So it, it really is an important issue And the reason it's important to make that point is because that goes to the very factors that drive productivity, which is then going to drive the wages growth and future jobs growth that, that, you know, we want to see in the years ahead. So Right. So so rather than those people who think people coming from overseas are are taking their jobs, uh, they're actually creating jobs, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, particularly when you look at the way in which we focused on skilled migration here, we're bringing people in who have a higher skill level on average than people in Australia. They're bringing their skills and knowledge and they're supporting investment and business growth. So so it is really important and it's really important for, for long-term growth. For CEDA, we're more interested in making sure that we we get the, the right processes, that we're, we're addressing the occupations list so that we're getting the right skills into the country. And everyone acknowledges that that occupations list, which is now multiple lists, isn't working. So we've got to get that right. We've got to definitely return to the levels that we had. And then I think, you know, we would we would err on the side of higher migration. But whether it's 40,000 or not, I'm not sure. Uh, the reality is there's some really big long-term skills and labour needs that we have and we have to sort of unpack those in terms of what are the skills we need and then you know one of the other things that we're advocating for is is an essential carers visa so we've got this massive need uh, for workers in the care economy at the moment they don't fit into the skills lists how do we think about bringing those people in in a way that's supporting a a tremendous long-term need in the economy what about unskilled migrant workers like students backpackers what did the pandemic teach us about the important role they play in the economy? It taught us exactly that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that we've relied pretty heavily on them in particular sectors. And so I think that really needs to be acknowledged and we need to think about what the right outcome there is. And of course, you know, one of the things that uh, the unions and others are very focused on is how we make sure that those people uh, are actually being treated the right way. If I'm looking ahead to the conversations we'll have next week at the, at the Jobs and Skills Summit, it's it's what are the things that we can implement quickly to start alleviating some of the, the bottlenecks and, and challenges that we have right here, right now? And then what are the things that we are going to have to reflect on that will put in place a system which is delivering the right outcomes and is sustainable? Because One of the things that we have seen over the decades really in Australia is that immigration policy chops and changes. We call it the revolving door in response to moments of great skill need. And then there's, you know, often a sort of not backlash, but, you know, the community becomes concerned about the number of people coming in and what that means for our domestic labour market. And we sort of have, have swung forward and backwards. And so 
I think we've we've learned a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, I think from my perspective, we've learned just how important skilled migration, but also other forms of migration have been to supporting our economy. And now we really need to try to reflect those in a, in, in a sensible and sustainable way through policies that reflect the skill needs, the increasing competition around the world for skilled workers, uh, but also some of the other sectors, whether it's agriculture or the caring economy, that we we are also going to have um, some some real really strong demand for, for labour in those sectors. So going into the conference next week, we already have broad agreement, you could say, on migration and perhaps uh, agreement on greater freedoms for pensioners to return to work as well. Beyond those two, how hopeful are you that we're going to get anything substantial out of the conference that we wouldn't have got anyway? So I think one we just have to you know be realistic, set some realistic expectations. It is two days. There's a there's a lot to be covered. One of the things that I think we should really lean into next week is that there are still people who have really struggled to uh, to enter the labour market, to to have jobs and to and to stay in those jobs. Whether it's older women um, who've been out of the workforce for a while, whether it's other uh, individuals who've faced various disadvantages when it comes to being seen to be employable. And here is a moment where we've got huge demand for workers coming into the workforce. I think we should really lean into the sorts of investments that we might make to actually get some people into the workforce that we've struggled to in the past. And there are some really great examples and things like people leaving prison um, and creating sustainable employment paths for them. That is an absolute win-win for them individually, but also for society. We've got some of our members who are doing really interesting work in skilling and reskilling refugees. Uh, so there's a there's a bunch of these sorts of examples that I think if we can get a bit of momentum and perhaps you know a, a bit of collaborative thinking across business and government that we can really make inroads to an area that we've struggled to for a long time. That's Melinda Salento, an economist and CEO of CEDA. There were no parades or concerts, but Ukraine celebrated its Independence Day this week, marking 31 years since breaking from the Soviet Union. I hope the war will end this year, so we can be joyful next spring. I would like us to get more help so this can end sooner and we start living the happy life we had before the war. The day fell exactly six months after Russia invaded, and despite the occasion, or perhaps because of it, There was no let-up in the assault. A Russian rocket strike on a train station killed 22 people and injured 50 more. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky condemned the attack and stressed his country's ongoing resolve. Today I can say with confidence, we will preserve the independence of Ukraine forever. We will keep it because we have such warriors. Western nations have announced more military and financial support for Ukraine, but there's no end in sight for the millions displaced by the war. The war is uh, having a toll, obviously. It's uh, bearing down on us, so uh, no doubt about it. There's no one single person that could say that I'm not feeling the impact of the war. One way or another, we're all affected. Volodymyr Dubovik is a political scientist at the Odessa National University. Like many others, he fled his home in the early days of the war. 
we feel now the enormous uh, feeling of pride, first and foremost, because uh, we're proud of being part of this nation of heroes, which is a smaller country than Russia, with a smaller military than Russia, and yet uh, they have failed dramatically in their attempt to subjugate Ukraine and uh, basically depose our government and uh, and impose another one and, uh, and uh, basically occupy Ukraine or take it under their full control. And uh, so the pride is dominating, but also there's pain. Uh, pain is there, obviously, because we're losing lives every day, military mm. and civilians alike. And uh, we will lose more, obviously, in the coming weeks and months because there is so far no signs of the war subsiding. Indeed. Russia has taken control of a significant amount of new territory. But as you mentioned, it comprehensively failed in its attempt to seize the capital, to decapitate the Ukrainian government. Why has Russia struggled so much since the start of this war? Well, we've learned more about their war and how ill-prepared it was. And uh, it seemed uh, obvious even in the first weeks and months that uh, Russia definitely exaggerated their strengths and they, uh, you know, overestimated their capabilities uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine and dramatically underestimated the Ukrainians' capabilities and to fight back and to stay strong in the resilience of the government and the resilience of, of the population, including in the south and the east. That's where the fighting is taking place, and that's where you have most of the ethnic Russians or Russian speakers here in Ukraine, who Moscow maybe thought will come up in big numbers to their support, but that didn't happen. You know, So therefore, they miscalculated in dramatic ways. And also, I think, they thought that the international community will be more passive. Uh, but no, uh, they got under sanctions, and I think sanctions are working slowly and should be kept in place. And also they got surprised by how much of a support, uh, weapons supply and financial support for economy and also for refugees and for internally displaced persons that Ukraine has got in the last six months. And uh, all of this uh, has been a, a bit of a surprise, I think, for Putin and mm. I think he now understands that he miscalculated, but he's a stubborn guy, you know, and he will try to drive it to the end. But Ukraine is surely under significant pressure as well, not just in terms of the the ground that it's lost, uh, but also the the economy, which is really, you know, running at, at kind of half strength at the moment. That's right. I mean, we've lost uh, the most modest estimation uh, something like four to five hundred billion dollars but i think it's probably more especially if you include something like a social cost like for instance millions of people losing their jobs and and their businesses and they couldn't come back and if you include more like at least one million people don't have a place to live now in ukraine that's a huge number so when we are talking about uh, how many people will and when return let's say from western ukraine more peaceful parts of the country and from abroad uh, to their places of permanent living uh, the question is uh, is there apartment or is there their house is still standing there. Is it safe? You know. So yes, mm. uh, the the damage is huge. Uh, it's going to take a lot of time for recovery. We clearly will be depending on international assistance in doing that, because Ukraine wasn't uh, one of the richest, uh, to put it mildly, countries in Europe. On the contrary, and therefore we would uh, definitely it would definitely take time. And I think one of the Russians, Russia's uh, aims and purposes in this invasion is to is to destroy as much as they can in Ukraine to make Ukraine weak and power and, and powerless and and, and uh, poor 
and depending on the West, and uh, uh, not strong enough to be a worthy opponent for the Russian military machine. Mm. As you say, so much depends on the West, and we have seen new pledges this week, uh, more than 60 right. million Australian dollars from the UK, almost 3 billion Australian dollars from the US. Uh, that is right. still considerable right. support flowing through, but is it enough? It is a lot. Uh, I normally take this position that what we've got, uh, we got to be grateful for. Uh, I mean, because no one really owes us anything. I mean, uh, there is, yes, there is a violation of international order. Yes, there is a clear aggressor and clear victim of aggression. Uh, yes, you have millions of innocent people struggling and being killed. But uh, you know what? We've seen uh, similar, maybe on a smaller scale, but similar pictures here and there around the world. And not always an international community has come together stronger in their coalition and uh, help, trying to help. So whatever is given to Ukraine, we have to be thankful. Uh, we would like to have more, definitely in terms of weapons. Uh, we would like to have more so that we can have more of a successful chance for a counteroffensive and uh, liberating the lands that Russia has taken since February 24th. Uh, but uh, what is what we're getting is is already changing the pace of the war and character of the war. Ukraine is really delivering painful strikes at Russia's positions, including. Uh, well behind uh, their uh, front line, including in Crimea, for instance, which was occupied by Russia back in 2014 when the war actually started in the spring of 2014. As Europe heads into winter, Vladimir Putin really holds the whip hand when it comes to energy and, and gas in particular. And we've seen changes to the amount of gas flowing into Europe already. Do you believe Europe's resolve can hold if those supplies are cut further? That would be a huge test, obviously, but a good lesson to them. I mean, they've been depending on Russian energy supply for years, if not decades. It goes back to the Cold War times, actually. And uh, now they are reassessing and, uh, you know, revaluating their position and making right decisions under difficult circumstances and dire circumstances and trying to cut on a, on a, on a supply of Russian energy, uh, even as we speak. So... Uh, there will be a big reason, big lesson then for the Europe and for you, for Russia as well, that if you just let me or everyone around, so people might find uh, different solutions. It's looking more and more like a, a long-term war, even, you know, has feelings of, of a sort of stalemate at the moment. There doesn't seem to be any easy way out. In your mind, is there any solution that both Ukraine and Russia could accept? Well, it's a good question. I mean, uh, so far we don't see Russia being ready for serious negotiations. Uh, they're still believing that what they've got uh, since February 26th, 24th was uh, that, uh, you know, they got some lands under their control within Ukraine. Uh, that could be negotiation, you know, the, uh, used as a negotiation tool, as a bargain, or will they release uh, this territory? So some of them, we don't know. They are probably still hoping to be able to advance a little more here and there in the east and in the south, even though clearly uh, it's really uh, resembling uh, the, the stalemate, as you say. I think uh, the war, as you said, will continue for a while. And then we'll see. And much will, again, depend on the assistance that Ukraine is getting from international community, be it weapons supply or financial assistance to our economy. If we're getting enough of it, uh, we'll, we'll survive. We'll be, we'll be fine. I mean, yes, we'll be damaged and injured, but we'll survive. If not, then Ukraine will be in a difficult situation. And the Putin's idea of uh, 
outwaiting and outsitting and being patient uh, about the Western Ukraine and basically waiting till the whole coalition against Russia is unraveling uh, will be um, coming to reality. But I hope that wouldn't be the case. That's Volodymyr Dubovik, a political scientist at the Odessa National University. RoboDebt was a tech-savvy scheme cooked up by the coalition government to modernise Australia's welfare system and crack down on fraudsters. But the automated debt recovery program was deeply flawed, found to have illegally taken more than $1.7 billion from some of the country's most vulnerable people, pushing many further into hardship. They're not interested in the average person. They're only interested in getting money. And they don't care who they get it from and how they get it and what we have to do without to pay it. It led to one of Australia's largest class action settlements, costing the government more than a billion dollars, and a withering assessment by a federal court judge who described the scheme as a shameful act of public administration. In response to the debacle, the former government axed the scheme, and this week Prime Minister Anthony Albanese made good on an election promise to launch a full royal commission into it. One of the commitments that I made was to put the humans back into human services to make sure that this can never happen again. We know that almost 400,000 Australians fell victim to this cruel system. A human tragedy with very real consequences for its victims. It was an election promise, so Labor's really got to do it. Uh, There's no avoiding it. It's good for democracy if uh, parties do actually keep their election promises. So we're going to see this robo-debt royal commission, but the fewer that people call for, the better. Professor Stephen Bartos is an expert in public sector governance at the University of Canberra. So given we already know why robo-debt was so disastrous and the federal court has already dealt with compensation for its victims... What can this Royal Commission really tell us? It can tell us who came up with the scheme, how it was devised. In a sense, that's uh, history. And while it might give people some satisfaction to find out who was responsible and have those people punished in some way, uh, that is, in a sense, a, a little bit hollow. But what could be important is if the Royal Commission works out what the systemic failings were inside the public service that led to this scheme being concocted and can advise on how to prevent those systemic failings, how to how to patch the holes that allowed robo-debt to arise in the first place. The opposition has called it a witch hunt and we had heard similar expressions by the previous Labor opposition in years gone past to other royal commissions that were targeting its time in office. Is there a danger that we're sort of lurching into a tit-for-tat royal commission territory? There is that danger. Certainly the Royal Commission that was launched into uh, unions uh, when the previous government was first elected had a bit of the flavour of attacking the former Labor government. It could be uh, that this Royal Commission has a, a similar impact, but that'll depend a little bit on how it conducts itself, whether it is about uh, finding fault and blame or whether it concentrates more on finding out how to prevent similar occurrences happening again. If it concentrates more on the second, then it could actually do some good. 
We seem to have had a, a spate of royal commissions and, and even more often hear calls for royal commissions from parties in opposition or minor parties on all sorts of issues. Why have they become so popular with, uh, with governments and oppositions in, in recent times? It's hard to tell why. Certainly they have become much more prevalent. We've already got two royal commissions concurrently running with this RoboDebt one. There's a Royal Commission going into defence and veteran suicide. There's a Royal Commission into uh, people with disability. Both of those are still ongoing. We previously had a spate of Royal Commissions into issues like uh, aged care and bushfires. So there's been uh, just a flurry of Royal Commissions. One of the things I think that it reflects is the loss of policy capacity in the public service. One of the alternatives to a Royal Commission is for the public service itself to investigate how to do policy better or how to chase up uh, issues like disability or natural disasters or uh, the various other things that Royal Commissions are looking at. So there is an alternative, and that is to rebuild ability of the public service itself to look through and and advise governments properly on these issues. I guess part of that would also be rebuilding faith in the public service if that's needed, because one of the things that a Royal Commission has is that sense of of independence and transparency. You know, a lot of the hearings are played out in public. That's absolutely right. So one of the problems uh, with trust in the public service is that it has become so identified with the government of the day that uh, people uh, have lost trust in the ability of the public service to act independently. Politicisation is often thought of in terms of just uh, appointing people with political connections to jobs. Uh, There's a more important sense of politicisation, and that is the tendency to require the public service to uh, just do whatever a minister asks them rather than think independently. In that second sense of politicisation, we've seen a lot of it happening in the public service over the last nine years of the previous government. And it was particularly seen uh, in a speech that Scott Morrison gave to the public service where he said it was the public service job to implement what ministers wanted. It wasn't their job to think independently. Uh, so, So it was actually explicitly the policy of the previous government. For now, though, it seems there's going to be more royal commissions. So is there a way to make them work better, more effectively, and to ensure that the recommendations are actually followed up and taken up? Uh, Royal commissions are a very expensive and an uncertain way of getting things done. There's no guarantee that the recommendations of a Royal Commission will be acted on by government. The classic case is the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, 30 years on, and its recommendations still haven't been fully implemented. Similarly, we had a Banking Royal Commission, and a large number of its recommendations haven't been acted on by government. So Royal Commissions don't necessarily give you results, They're incredibly expensive. Uh, The RoboDebt Royal Commission is going to be on the very cheap side. It's going to be a mere 30 million, which is nonetheless a really big amount of money to be spending on investigating a past issue. Sometimes they're needed. So if it's the only way to forensically investigate things that went wrong, as, for example, with the uh, inquiry into the oil for food scandal, maybe a Royal Commission is the only way to get to the 
heart of uh, a matter, but uh, uh, more typically, uh, you can find other ways that are both cheaper and more effective. Professor Stephen Bartos, an expert in public sector governance at the University of Canberra. He was also employed as a senior advisor to the Royal Commission on Aged Care Quality and Safety. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Matt Bamford, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. David Lipson.